Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers. I'm really excited to share with you this week's guest mentor Mark Stiving because Mark brings a wealth of pricing expertise to bear and not only get across key concepts but he does it in a non-consultant speak type way just using normal language and just some fascinating insights not just from the pricing but also Mark's career as well and how he got into pricing. And in particular, he tailors some of the advice for our finance and accounting audience. Uh, We start by discussing how finance professionals interpret or think about the word value and pricing. And then we go and deconstruct some decision making around pricing, which is the will I versus which one situation. Mark also pays finance people a huge compliment by saying why we might be amongst the best groups to do pricing. However, also tempers that by saying there are some things we can do better to help create and capture the value that pricing can drive in our organizations. We also look towards the future and two key trends happening at the moment that we need to keep an eye out around pricing, particularly when it comes to subscription-based models. And then there's some fantastic key advice Mark shares towards the end of our time together. So I highly encourage you to listen all the way through on this one. Now, if you do happen to enjoy this week's episode, please remember you can subscribe and recommend the show to your friends and colleagues. We're on all the major platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify. And if you want to know more about Mark, some of the key quotes, transcripts of the interview, links to the resources recommended and more, you can check the episode out at sitnshow.com. And I think that's enough for me for now. So without further ado, over to Mark. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. It's our pleasure to have you, and I really enjoyed our conversation previously as well. I'm really excited to share you with our audience. But before we jump into that, would you mind maybe taking our audience through a brief history of your background in finance and pricing? Yeah, so I'm not much of a finance person, but I actually have a bachelor's in science and electrical engineering from Ohio State, the Ohio State University. I was an engineer for a few years. And I remember being an engineer and looking around the room and seeing the salespeople and they looked like they were having fun. And so, so they were taking people to lunch. I thought I could do that job. And uh, I transferred into sales and let me assure you, I was horrible, right? I, I did, was not a good salesperson. And so then I decided that I needed a career change. And what do you do when you need a career change? You go get an MBA. So I got an MBA at Santa Clara University then decided I, I just fell in love with going to school, right? I don't know if you've ever tried this, but when you go to class not hungover, you can learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and your brain cells will thank you as well, take some of the pressure off. So, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, so I fell in love with going to school. I asked my wife if I could get into Berkeley or Stanford. Could I get a PhD? And she said, sure, thinking I wasn't going to get in. Uh, so luckily I got into Berkeley and I have a PhD in marketing. I like to say pricing because all my research was in pricing. And, and from there, I went on. I was a professor for four years. I was a director of pricing at some pretty big companies for a bunch of years. I started a company, sold it. And then I started teaching 
product management, product marketing, and pricing through a company called Pragmatic Institute. I left them a couple of years ago, and now all I do is coach and teach companies about pricing. Oh, fantastic. So, so like the, the common theme, once you, you finish up engineering and sales, has been pricing um, all the way through that, right? It's uh... So let me say yes, but let me also say the engineering and the sales stuff helped me immensely. Because when you think about pricing, when I think about pricing, yeah. I think about it as uh, not only do I have to get the number right, but I have to be able to communicate the value so people are willing to pay that number. And then once you start thinking about value, then you start thinking about how do I create products that actually have value so I can put a bigger number on it. And so I think of pricing as creating, communicating and capturing value, which has helped, you know, the, the sales piece in particular helped me a ton. And engineering, product development, just the thought process helps a lot. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's really interesting because as our listeners know, we have this concept we, we touch on now and again called the value ladder. And at the start of that, because it's, it's aimed at accounting and finance professional, there's an awful lot about protecting that value to begin with, safeguarding assets and so on. But beyond that, the next steps are creating value and capturing it. And I just feel that we're probably making some venturing towards the creating bit the capturing probably is the area where we could do an awful lot better. So for some people, maybe coming more from a finance background uh, or, or maybe come up through the accounting streams, where could they start to begin effectively trying to go out and create and capture value for, for their organizations? Yeah, great question. And let me take a, a brief step back and put myself in the shoes of an accounting or finance person for a second. And typically when they hear the word value, they're probably thinking, what's the value of our company, right? What's the market value? What's yes. the market cap of our company? And if you think about how you put a value on that, right? The value on that is typically what's someone else willing to pay for it? How much is someone willing to pay, my, pay for my stock? And we start thinking about what are the things I could do to get that market cap higher? What, what are the things I could do to get my stock price higher or the next round of investment higher? And the thinking is exactly the same thinking when we start talking about, I need to create a product so my customer is willing to pay more for my product or my customer, I can find more customers who are willing to buy my product. Yeah. It's the exact same thought process. So it's because, and again, I was just trying to think because I suppose in finance, I like to think we have that broader perspective, thinking about the company's value first and then deconstructing that to, to helping our customers identify value and then and capture some of that. Do you feel like we have maybe a bigger role to play in that and just not leave it all on the sales and marketing organizations to be figuring this stuff out? Can I say, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I was a loaded question, uh, in fairness. <laughs> yes. I, so I love finance people for pricing and finance people aren't the right people for pricing. So let's talk through that for just a second. Yeah. The, the one thing finance people don't know is the value of our product. They're not out talking to customers and marketplace all the time. They don't know how our product is going to help that customer improve and how they're how our product's different than our competitor's product and what the value is of those differences. So let's just, let's confess or admit, and it's not even their job, that finance people don't understand value from the perspective of the customer. But finance people have so many tools at their disposal to help the company capture more of the value that we're creating. And so when we start thinking about what are those tools, first off, the thing that finance has that I love the most is they have influence in the company. 
everybody in the company is scared of finance, worries about what finance thinks, right? Finance can snap their fingers and the rest of the company jumps. It's like, okay, they hold the purse strings. We're going to do what they ask. And so finance could drive a shift of culture or mindset towards everybody thinking about value just by asking questions about value. And so I think that's one thing that they could do that's fantastic. I, second, I, I, oh, go ahead. So I, was, I was going to say, just on those questions, I know I interrupted your flow there a bit, Mark, but this, the, on those questions, are there any sort of good questions to start on picking that value or, or get people to appreciate it better? Yes, yes. So first, let's say that I think that finance people need to understand what value means mm-hmm. to a customer. Right? They don't have to know our value, but they need to know what does it mean to have value? Yeah, yeah. And so... I often teach companies about value. What does value mean? How do you find it? And then we do these exercises to go find their own value. But I'll give you a couple of pointers, a couple of quick thoughts on that. And the first one is, I, I love this concept. Most people, when they buy a product, they make two different decisions. They first say, will I buy something in the product category? Then they say, okay, yes, I'm going to. Now, which one am I going to go buy? And people, when the buyer is making those two different decisions, they think about value differently. And sometimes in our products, uh, customers never go on to compare us to a competitive alternative. And if that's the case, then we need to be thinking about value the way our customers are thinking about value. And we call that the will I decision, right? So I'll give you two examples of will I products that are just easy and fantastic. One is popcorn at the movie theater, right? Popcorn's ridiculously expensive. (laughs) and, And the reason is there's no competitive alternative. Yeah, yeah, captive audience, literally. Yes. Another example of a will I product is the Apple iPhone. I will bet you that if you are using an iPhone today, you are thinking to yourself, am I going to upgrade to the next iPhone or not? And what you're not thinking is, am I going to upgrade to the next iPhone or buy an Android? Right. And so you're not considering a competitive alternative. Once we understand and we can think the way our buyers are making decisions, we can think about what does value mean. And by the way, if someone's not comparing us to competitive alternatives, they're not very price sensitive. Right? Price is not driving that fact, that decision. Something else is driving that decision. And, and so we should understand that. We should recognize that. We should price for it. But now if you don't understand that concept of will I and which one, how do you price for will I versus which one? So it's a really fascinating concept. I think it's, I, just, I could just imagine now we've got some finance professionals like, uh, listening in and some CFOs as well and just thinking, my God, they've got to sound much more intelligent in commercial conversations now, asking the will I or which I type type questions. So unpick it, but, but actually I really like that framework because the motions to market are very slightly different and the, the types of questions that flow on are slightly different depending on its will I or the which question. So Absolutely. that's actually, that's really, so look, I'm not making any apologies now for interrupting your flow because I'm glad I did because they're very useful questions, Mark. But I think you're moving on to a second point as well on other ways we could start looking at creating and capturing value. Yeah. So so the first one, let's say, is once a finance person understands what value means, that helps them figure out what are the questions I want to ask. And by the way, they don't know the answers, but they can recognize if the answer is a reasonable answer and has the person (laughs) they're they're talking to thought through the questions themselves. Yes. Yes. That's like as a coaching or advisory type role, right? We don't have to know the answers. It's just asking good, intelligent questions. 
Absolutely. And then the second thing that finance people, this is an asset that finance people have, and it's a way that they can help pricing immensely. And that is by spending time on new and the relevant KPIs, right? Finance has access to all the data in the entire company, and they could create KPIs to help companies start thinking about revenue, not just are we getting revenue, but what about ASP, average selling price, uh, per product? What about average selling price per region? What about average selling price per pick some cohort of customers? So, so what are the ASP trends looking like? What are the ASPs for new products versus existing products? Right? These are all things that we can start thinking about. How do we share data with the company, with the product managers, with the product marketers, whoever's making pricing decisions so they can make better decisions around creating value, capturing value, uh, and communicating value. So I think the data piece is huge. Yeah, the, talking of data, I suppose we might have been guilty in the past of using data to, to look at things like activities and driving costs down and minimizing costs. But when it comes to, to pricing, it really gives us an opportunity to maximize value for customers and also our organizations too. And it's similarly like asking questions and, and, and following it through and making sure there's a coherent strategy coherent logic behind what we're doing i think we have the skills to do that it's just maybe new territory is not our comfort zone i think that's absolutely right if you think about most people in finance and accounting and, and i don't mean this in any derogatory no. way they spend i'd say way the the vast majority of their time on the cost side of profitability and not on the revenue side of profitability sure they're watching revenue but they're not pushing it where they're yeah, more pushing cost, yeah. they're pushing yeah. cost reduction initiatives, and, and and so I think if they spent more equal time on equal the revenue time, yeah. side, yeah. I, I think it would make a huge difference. Yeah, I com I completely agree. That maybe because I'm a bit of a pricing geek myself, I'm not a specialist, but I, I I lead a team of it, and again, I'm just fascinated by the value we can go add just by asking some more intelligent questions and and putting a bit more focus around it. So. So Mark, really appreciate enlightening that for us. In terms of yourself, what's exciting you most about your current work at the moment? I have, I've built one of the most unusual companies in that I just, I don't do consulting. I've decided I only want to do things I want to do. And so what I want to do is I love teaching about pricing and I love advising companies about pricing. And so I have several companies where I do a weekly phone call and we tackle pricing problems and, and, and as you've already heard me say, pricing is way bigger than putting a number on something. It's really understanding value and what's the value of our products and how do we choose market segments? So I get the biggest thrill out of helping people be successful in their companies. And I, I get to do it every week. So to me, that's what's exciting. Yeah. I see you light up when you know, you're talking about that, Mark. Uh, some people must say, that's living the dream. Do you, do you think uh, from a pricing perspective, what, what are the upcoming developments we should all be aware of where pricing might be going or where there might be future opportunities for us to go and uh, create more value out there? Yeah, I'll give you the two that I think of. And actually, it's the same one, but it's a nuance. If your company is not going subscription today, so if you haven't put a subscription business today. model in place yet, yeah, then maybe it's maybe your industry or situation is not appropriate for it. But I got to say that if it is appropriate and you're not doing it, someone else is going to do it. So you should be thinking about, does subscription fit in my industry? 
and how could I make it fit? And that's a really big deal. And then the second one I'll say is if you are a subscription company, so you're already running subscription, I would say the vast majority of companies I talk with do a good job at understanding uh, there's three revenue buckets in a subscription business. And, and most companies do a really good job at understanding the first two. And that is I have to win customers and I have to keep customers. Yep. Right? And they rarely spend energy and effort doing the third one, which is I have to grow customers, right? Expansion, uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So yes, yeah, so let me use consultant speak, acquisition, <laughs> Sorry, retention, yeah. and expansion. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I couldn't resist. I, I couldn't resist. Although somebody point out to me, right, on the acquisition one, and you're completely right, that's how it was inter- introduced to me. Mark, but they said, um, you know, you shouldn't say acquisition. That's very derogatory. It's like very something a finance would say. I'm in finance. Why do you expect me to say, oh, customer creation? I was like, okay, okay, right. Okay, I can use that. That's not too far of a jump. But yeah, so Uh, acquisition, retention, expansion. It's actually, it's really funny knowing these things. On the other side, again, it's just for our audience benefit. So again, a lot of these subscription models are like insurance or cell phone contracts or whatever. And when it comes up that time for renewal, knowing this information, we know companies have budgets to retain customers. It's much cheaper to retain a customer than acquire a new one. I don't know what the ratio is now. Is it three or four X? I can't remember, but I didn't know that's changed over time. But it does mean that if you do want to save some money personally or for your business, you phone up around that time of the renewal and you can negotiate a better deal because the company's got a lot more leeway to, to give you a good deal. So actually, you can use it both ways. For those that are cost-minded at the moment, yes, take this information and go and save your company some money on their cost. But I think the value is looking at our, our, the value we offer customers and seeing if a, a subscription uh, model or recurring revenue model is perhaps where we should be moving. Because if we don't, as you said, Mark, someone else is probably going to do it. Yep. It could be the right move to move, even defensively. It could be the right move, but I, I, that's, I, I never thought about it that way. Quick plug. I just wrote a book called Win, Keep, Grow, which, yes, which, yes. which is why I use the words win, keep, and grow all the time. That, and it's easy to say, and people remember it. And Oh, but, actually, that's much nicer. Yeah, <laughs> it's less financy. Right, win, right. Win, keep, grow. I, I try hard not to speak in consultant speak. Yeah, I, I, I could. I, yeah, definitely in our previous conversation, this I, I, I know um, I completely agree, Mark. And actually, it's really refreshing because again, sometimes you can get with these technical terms, and actually, the essence is winning, keeping, and growing customers. I love it. I'm gonna bar. I'm actually just take that going forward. Go ahead. Now. Go ahead. Yeah. And I could always plug your book then at the same time. It's like, oh, exactly. if you want to know more about this, I, that's, <laughs> that's back, mutual value creation. That is. Back to the key <laughs> point, though. And that was subscription companies don't do a good job at growing customers, right? If you think about how you grow a customer, you grow a customer by getting them to pay us more money next year than they paid us last year. And that's going to happen either because we raise prices. So now we have to think through what's a price increase look like and, and how are we going to make that happen? Uh, we could do that because the customer has grown and they're using more of our product. Wow. But that only makes sense, or that only works if we chose a good pricing metric for how we're going to charge for our products. We could grow customers if they upgrade to a new package. So we would think of it as upsell on our side or upgrade on from their perspective. Now, that only works if I created packaging so that it makes sense for people who are getting more value from my product to upgrade from the good to the better, better to the best. Yes. And then the last one. The last way you can get a customer to pay you more is through cross-sell. 
And once you've built a great relationship, could I build more things for that customer, that type of customer that would buy from that they would buy from us? But I got to say, companies don't think about those things I just told you. No, it's actually, I'm not going to name names of particular companies, and but it is really interesting. That grow one does seem to be a bit of an afterthought. And, <laughs> and it's just and, like on tap potential. But by the way, it should be an afterthought in the following sense. If you're a, a new startup company, you don't care about growing your customers. No. No. You, you got to care about winning them and keeping no. them. And, but once you've built a decent sized user base, now we should be thinking, how do I get more money from that user base? Because you, you may have heard the, the statistic net dollar retention. And net dollar retention essentially says, if I take a cohort of customers and I count the dollars that I that turned out, so people who left me, and I count the dollars of the grow revenue bucket, how much did I get from that cohort of customers a year later? And companies like Zoom, when they go public, they've got a net dollar retention number of 140%. So that means they're getting 40% more revenue a year later from their current customer base. That even counts people who stopped using Zoom. Now, I'm not sure who stopped using Zoom, but still. No, but that's one a great example, uh, Mark. You had a phenomenal year in a bit, actually. So it'd be interesting yeah, oh, this was right. before wow. this year. Goodness. Yeah, so so yeah, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, no, I'll have to check that one out. I actually don't know where it's at the moment, but that's fascinating. That's a heck of a net retention. Yeah, I, uh, and I only know that because it's in their S1 when they filed to go public. Wow. We'll have, we'll have some audience checking that out before we yes. even get to the end of this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> That's just the way our minds work. <laughs> I don't know, Mark, seriously. Again, again, I will put um, a link to the Win Keep Grow book into our show notes for audience to go click on and check out. And um, and then I know you've written some other books as well, Mark. So again, we can include some links there as well. I suppose, Mark, look, you've given us some great advice there. What's been the best bit of advice you've received throughout your experience, your career and so on? So although this is semi-pricing advice, it's actually not. This is career advice. And I'm going to give this to everybody. And that is be an expert. It doesn't matter what it is, be an expert. And, and so if, if I could go back in my career for a second, most of my jobs were always, I want to run away from that last job. So what can I find to do next? And it wasn't ever a strategic, what's the right thing to go do, right? What should I be planning on and where should I go? And I'd lucked out and done things well, but then I ended up in 2008, finding myself without a job and, and the market was down. I was in a huge depression. I finally get myself a job. Uh, because I could pretend to be a pricing expert because I have a PhD in pricing and I taught pricing. And so I get a pricing job and, uh, and it was really hard to get this job. And I said to myself after I got it, that is never going to happen to me again. Mm-hmm. So I started blogging about pricing. I wrote my first book on pricing. And once I committed to becoming a pricing expert and being known as a pricing expert, doors have just opened up for me, right? Things just happen. It's re- it is really interesting the way you've described it. It reminded me so much of a, a similar bit of advice we also had from another mentor on the show, actually based out of South Africa. And he, he wants to become such an expert. He, he went away and he read the, in, in retail finance. So, to, so driving finance, but in retail within his uh, country. He went away and read the annual reports for the last five years of every retail concern, public retail concern. And he said, you could learn so much by becoming an expert. That other people are already doing. It's just because you're you've really committed to the exercise, 
and he'd be in a board meeting or a management meeting and something had come up and he'd be able to reference something that would work or perhaps didn't quite work out so well. So so even short of getting a PhD, which, by the way, would be very useful, I think. <laughs> so, so let me disavow you of that, right? I think yeah. a PhD was good for me in that it gave me the confidence to do what I did. But right. in all honesty, anybody can go do what I did. You don't need a PhD. So and, I, and, and I was going to say, Mark, but when you said about the blogging and so on, and you've got your own podcast as well. Like, is that sort of a commitment to the expertise is just turning up and just keeping at it and keep evolving your thinking? Or because when you said you don't necessarily need the PhD, anyone can do it. Is that what people could do? Is the blogging, the podcasting or whatever? Yeah, I hadn't thought of this until we just had this conversation, but there's really two sides to this. One side is becoming an expert and the other side is becoming known as an expert. And known as an expert, yep. Right. And so you've got to decide how you want to become known as an expert. Me, I love sharing this book that I just wrote, Win, Keep, Grow. The reason I wrote the book is because while I was studying subscriptions, I just had aha moment after aha moment. It's like, oh, that's different. Oh, that's okay. different. Yeah. Oh, that's different. And and I just wanted to share it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely get you. As someone, in, act, in essence, my, my first book was just an amalgamation of those aha moments. It's probably similar to your book, right? It's just those aha. And like, oh, I want to share this because it's really helped me. It's helped right. others. So why not share it? When it's like, it, 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 then it compounds and then that's how you become known uh, as an expert in a certain area. So I guess, I guess look, uh, audience, uh, there's, there's a well-trodden path here. Hopefully Mark Mark's advice you know, helps straighten it out a bit because <laughs> we all know our careers can be topsy-turvy in bits and pieces. So no, great advice, Mark. So thanks for sharing that. The other thing I would say is have the attitude of giving away as much as you can. As you become an expert, as you become an expert, just give. And, and then over time, you'll figure out how do you monetize it? How do you charge for it? What are you going to charge for? But in the beginning, just give it away. I, 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 know it's, I know it's counterintuitive. It reminds me of a book I read a long time ago by, I think it was Chris Anderson, the guy behind the TED Talks. I think it was called mm -hmm. Free. Yep. And essentially, it was just giving it away. He talked about things like the long tail and so on. But I actually have to say, in my own experience, that's, that's a very good strategy, not, a, not only as a, as a business person, per se, which is my stuff outside my day job, but within an organization. Actually, it's a very good approach because I think a lot of people are fearful about sharing their knowledge. But true experts, there's, there's, no, there's only a market of one, really. You're only competing with yourself. So I think it's a really good approach, whether you're within an organization like a lot of our audience or, or running a practice or are out there on your own. Giving away actually is probably a, a damn good strategy, a very effective one, actually. Absolutely. And, and let's just use a quick example, right? Earlier in this podcast, we talked about will I versus which one, right? So this is something that I created. It was a mindset that I came up with because of a situation I was in. It's like, oh my God, that is so important. And I tell everybody, but I would challenge anyone to go apply that because it's hard, right? You heard me say it. You said, yeah, it makes sense. And then you're going to mess it up because you don't really know, is this a will I? Is this a which one? How do I create the which one? And then you say, well, I need help. Guess who you're going to call? Yeah. Uh, or it could like, they tried it, didn't quite go as expected. Need, need help. Or just, just bounce something off. And I, I completely agree. I, I absolutely love it. And it just multiply that across all the different disciplines out there, the things that need to get done. That makes complete sense, Mark. Great advice. I suppose if our audience are looking to start, get familiar with 
some good resources is there any sort of books or documents you can recommend our audience go check out so let me see what have i read that i really liked i love the book monetizing innovation from madhavan ramanujan and so that's a oh, pricing wow. book but I've it's never a, come across it yeah monetizing it is, innovation it is a think of it as product management and pricing combined and i think that's it was just a fabulous book i really liked it there was a book that influenced the way I think a lot called The One Thing, I think is what it was called. I'm not 100% sure, but it was really about picking the thing you want to focus on and go focus on it, right? Uh, Do that. It what, was it one of those uh, venture capitalists or something wrote that one or something like that? Someone from but Silicon I, Valley. I feel so bad that I'm not giving somebody credit for their work. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know the one. I think I'd actually, I, really, I'm really embarrassed because I actually think I've got it as an audio book. I was going to say, I'm popping up in Kindle as we speak. Yeah. Uh, who is it? Who is it? I, I read it by Gary Keller. That's the one. Yes. Yes. Gary Keller. That sounds right to me. Yeah. I think he was, I think he was like the student of someone and he wrote down someone's lecture notes and that's this one thing. I got a feeling that's what it is, but, but I'll have to go clarify that. I don't want to steal his thunder. Oh, oh, oh. I just popped open um, my Kindle. I don't remember what I read until I see it. But here's the one that you got to see this. I love the book Thinking and Bets by Annie Duke. Oh, that's a I new one to me. This <laughs> Thinking book. and Bets. Oh Why is that? Why are you going? Why'd you love that one? So, so Annie Duke is a professional poker player. And so she's talking about, she's not talking about poker. In the, she uses it as an example. But she's really talking about decision-making and how we never have full information when we make decisions. Completely true. Yes. And, yes. and so how do you think about the decision? And I, I don't want to ruin the entire book, but I'm going yeah, to give yeah. you the lesson that I took away <laughs> from it, which I thought was incredible. And that is you can make a bad decision and have a good outcome, and you can make a good decision and have a bad outcome. So you need to think through, did I make a good or bad decision? and not just look at what the outcome was. Yeah. And my favorite example of what she does, of, of her describing this, is um, imagine that you go out to a party one night, you have a bunch of drinks, you get in the car, you drive home, and you got home safely. Was that a good decision or a bad decision? <laughs> yeah. See, again, it depends on our audience's perspective here, right? But I have to say, the fact that you got home is a mere miracle. <laughs> and that's the point, right? And, and by the way, maybe you get home 90% of the time or 95% of the time or whatever the heck it is, but it's still a bad decision. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it reminds me of that scene of the Wolf of Wall Street uh, and he tries to get home. <laughs> it was a bad decision. The car was a wreck. Thank God yes. no one was killed. So yeah, but no, that's a great example. I'm going to have to check that one out. I'm, I'm really curious now. You've really piqued my interest. You sold me on that one, Mark. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. So, so the point, let's make this practical for a second, right? Yeah. The point is we often, we as people often take a look at our successes and say, I did that, yeah. right? That was me. That was my brilliant decision-making. And then we look at our failures and say, oh, no, someone else caused that. Someone else, yes, yes. Right? That wasn't yes. me. That wasn't my decision. <laughs> but can we step back and honestly look at our own decisions and say, yes, that was a good decision. No, that wasn't a good decision. And by the way, I confessed to one earlier in the podcast already. I said, early in my career, I didn't make strategic decisions on what I was going to go do next. I just said, I'm running away from that. Can I say running away from your last job is a bad decision? Creating a strategy and a plan for where you want to go in your career is a good decision. Yeah, I, 
I, I actually, I'm, I'm going to come right back to that point. That this podcast would not have happened if it wasn't for someone picking me up on that one, Mark. I definitely was the type of person running from job to job, and then they gave me a strategy, a framework to go execute against, and that's helped not just me, many other people uh, in finance and accounting. So it's it's really wonderful advice. Re- really touched the nerve for me. So. So again, thanks for sharing sharing that one again. Awesome stuff. Look, um, I've enjoyed our conversation, but if our, our audience wish to reach out, continue the conversation some way, where's the best place to connect with you at? Yeah, two things. Send me an email, mark at impactpricing.com or I'm on LinkedIn a lot. So feel free to find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. So they'll go in the show notes as well. Mark, look, again, thanks for sharing so much advice. But before we, we let you get away from us, is there any sort of parting thoughts you, you can share with our audience? Okay. I'll, is it okay if it's a long parting thought? Oh, God, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> More value for us. <laughs> so I think another one of my huge catastrophes in my life, this one wasn't brought on by myself, but I was engaged. <laughs> I was engaged when I was 23. And it turns out that the girl I was engaged to was lying to me and cheating on me and blah, 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 blah. And when I finally found out, I... I I couldn't eat for three days, right? I was just oh my I was so devastated. This woman that I was so madly in love with just crushed my heart. And, and I kept saying to myself, why did she do this to me? Why did she do this to me? And, and it took my mom to show me this. But in truth, she didn't do this to me. She did this because she thought it was the best thing for her every time she made a decision, right? Whatever that was. And I was just a a catastrophe of the situation. Now, I I suddenly realized in that time frame, everybody makes every decision in their own best interest. Now, people hate it when I say that, but but trust me, it is, if it's not 100% true, it's 99.9% true. You peel it back, it has to be. Right? And, and, And by the way, go forward a dozen years and I'm in the doctoral program and I learn about this thing in economics called utility theory, where everybody maximizes their own utility. And I said, wait, wait, I invented that. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. But I really didn't. The whole reason I bring that up is because that thought process has driven me my entire life since that point. And when I deal with people, I never expect someone to have to do something for me. Right. I, I always expect that you invited me on here because it's going to make your podcast. You think it's going to make your podcast better. You're not doing this to give me a benefit. Now, if I can help you out while we're doing it, great. That's awesome. Yeah. Right? But in truth, I my attitude always has to be, how can I help you? Because maybe, by the way, you're always thinking of you and I'm always thinking of me. So if I can help you, maybe you're going to help me. Is, doesn't that make sense? So, so I just, it's an attitude that I've had my entire life since I was 23. And, and it has worked amazingly well, especially when you think about pricing. Yeah, I, I, I love how out of catastrophe comes, comes some good positive motion. I, I, I really do. I think this is most constructive uh, way of thinking about it. Mark, and look, it's not just that advice. It's, it's the advice you've given us all interview, all podcasts. It's just been amazing. I I feel like my, my my brain needs a bit of a, a time to decompress afterwards. There's been so much good stuff out there. I just want to go and apply. But I just encourage our audience, look, if you do want to to go and apply some of the advice Marcus uh, shared with us today, 
just do it in bite-sized bits. Don't go for it. You can go check our website, just focus in on the bits that you want, which is a transcript as well, if you prefer to read it, and then go and execute. But Mark, awesome stuff. Really appreciate you, you know, investing the time with us today and being a great guest mentor on Strength in the Numbers. No worries. It's always fun. Thanks. And by the way, I did this for me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter, which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news, and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding, and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working, or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. And when all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.